I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Jesse Mason. Jesse, welcome to the podcast. Uh, now, you are an atmospheric scientist. Um, what is an atmospheric scientist to you, or how do you practice your atmospheric science? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, when I when I first got in, involved in, in this area of study, it was because of where I'm from. I'm from the West Coast. I'm from Vancouver, and, and it's one of the places where everyone almost has to be an atmospheric scientist in order to be able to have some fun, right? And, and the minute you step out the door or step into an elevator, everyone's talking about the weather. And so it first came out for a love of the environment, for my love for the mountains and skiing and, and all of the things that are so special for the, for the Pacific Northwest. And, and so that was, for me, was what an atmospheric scientist was. But over the years, uh, I've realized it's, it's meant a lot more from clean energy to, to helping support the, the climate crisis. Um, and how did you, uh, or what did you study to get into atmospheric science? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, we start out along with, with everyone else, grinding it out in all of the different types of engineering degrees. And, and you never get into the real fun stuff until, until the last year. Um, and this is where, where I spent a lot of time at, at UBC, getting exposure to, to all of the different places that we could um, see atmospheric science being, being helpful um, in, in what we need to do, whether that was forecasting the weather just for everyday life or for making sure that severe weather wasn't impacting operations um, and, and starting to really get a feel for, for how I could use this, this, this degree to to support uh, the environment, which is why I really got into it. Um, yeah, you started out at UBC, you went away for a little while and then came back to do your PhD, right? That's right. I came back to do my master's, actually. And then, and then uh, and um, yeah, so I left after after my bachelor's, was keen, like like most folks, to, to try and find a few extra dollars in the pocket and and find out uh, exactly where I wanted to see my, my career go, go and grow. And, and during that time, I had a ton of uh, interesting and, and exciting uh, adventures, and stu- including taking part in uh, the co-op program at UBC, bringing in students from, from the exact course and program that I had graduated from, bringing them over to, to my job, which was then at the Canada's television network, CTV, uh, where we worked on, on programming and making sure that the, the weather forecasts were, were delivered to people as appropriately and accurately as, as possible. Um, it was after that, after we had the, the, the Olympics, where we got to work very closely on ensuring that the games had the most accurate weather forecasts available, um, that I came back to UBC to look more into to clean energy and I'll focus on, on how I could use my, my degree towards the climate crisis. This was my first sort of thought on, on something a little bit different. I'd already started with TV and, and now I, I, I look to, to change the path again, but always remaining within, within weather. Yeah, whenever we think of atmospheric scientists, we think of the people we see on TV, uh, on the nightly news. Um, but you're not doing that anymore, right? You actually have a, a very interesting and, and important job. Yes, that's right. You know, and I think this is something that I, that, that I struggled with, actually, when I came back to, to university was, was how, how could I break out of this pathway of either going back to TV or going back to Environment Canada? I knew there was a bigger and, and broader world out there. And that was thanks to my professor, Roland Stull, who really pushed the limits in, in many different ways. And I was so lucky to have him um, really working closely with the private sector, working with, with BC Hydro, working with BC Ferries, um, working with different types of energy, solar, wind waves and and I started to see the potential the big potential out there and then I started to realize the big potential in the developing part of the world and how these tools and skills could be used in an even bigger and more important piece than just here in BC and so now I'm based in Rome Italy for the United Nations World Food Program where I'm supporting all 84 offices along with a growing team of meteorologists in ensuring that, again, we have appropriate early warning information, accurate and skillful weather forecasts, supporting 
a variety of different types of operations, whether they are during or after a major emergency, major typhoons or droughts, floods, um, or ahead, right? This is the, the big key, ahead, using weather forecasts to, to get ahead of those disasters, to get ahead of those natural hazards, in fact, before they become humanitarian disasters. So it's a very exciting role and, and one that I'm very passionate and, and definitely very lucky to have found myself in. Wow, that's not an ap application of atmospheric science that I would have thought of most of the time, but it sounds really important. Um, and it sounds like you deal with both short-term weather events uh, like storms, but also long-term weather events like droughts. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And it's these timescales that are just really so important. And they're really so important in the way we communicate um, hazards. And as you can imagine, having such a large organization trying to reach some of the most vulnerable people in the farthest places of the world, having accurate and skillful forecasts, but delivered in a timely fashion, delivered in a way that people can obviously read them, understand them, and then make actions on them, right? And make sure that takes time. If you're going to to get a, a note that there's a typhoon coming, you need to know where, how, you know, when it's going to arrive, and then you need to be able to evacuate yourself, or you need to be able to protect your belongings. There is a certain amount of time that's needed there. It's actually quite a bit of time, as you can imagine. And so this is the role I put in, is to be able to get these early warnings out as soon as possible, in a number, and for a number of ways, to both ensure that people are able to act on them, but then also to ensure our organization is primed and ready to help these people. And, and this is where, where things have changed a little bit in the last few years. And this is where it started to get really interesting at the World Food Program, which has started asking me the question on what else could we do in that time instead of just waiting for the typhoon to hit and making sure that we are ready to respond, that we are ready to ensure that people don't die. What else could we do? And this is when people started really questioning the skillfulness of the forecast. How accurate and how much further can we look in, into in advance? And this is really where we start to see the scientists come in. We start to see places like EOS really come in and start to help out, actually. And this is something that I'm really looking forward to to develop in the future. Wonderful. And how far ahead are you looking in general? Yeah, exactly. So as you can imagine, as you likely know, the, the short onset, which is what we call floods or typhoons or hurricanes, are giving us around five to seven days notice. It's not much time. And so this information needs to flow accompanied with resources to support people. You can imagine if you're in a place where your only asset is a, an animal or, or some sort of um, tools to support your livelihood, you'd be very, very reluctant to leave them behind. And so having the resources needed in order to either bring them along, put them to higher ground, protect them, something simple as a waterproof bin, uh, maybe a few extra dollars so you don't feel like a burden going to a family member's house, are these important dignified pieces of information that people can have access to. And you can imagine then the story goes from instead of us responding to a hazard and, 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 and recovering people, people are then protected from them and they're no longer needing to be, to be uh, rescued. And this is cheap in a sense of, of course, financial. It costs a lot less to, to support people before they need that type of, of, of help. But also it's much more dignified. We all do not want to be in a position where we're begging for help. A few, a little helping hand, as we all know, a little helping hand, a few extra bucks before things go really bad, goes a long way in, 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 in so many ways, right? And, and this is a big piece of, of what we try to get done in those five to seven days. When it comes to droughts, the seasonal stuff, we obviously have a lot longer leeway. This means that we can do a lot more things. It also means that the forecasts need to be very good. Because if we start to implement things like water harvesting techniques, before the rains fail, before the rains are forecast to fail, there'll be some rain. And if we can be very effective and efficient in how we manage that and monitor that, then we can start to ensure that there's probably enough. And we need to build those, those irrigation structures or rehabilitate them or half moons or different types of agricultural practices to ensure that crops maybe new crops, drought resistant crops that we can help supply, are able to cope and flourish as best as possible within the conditions that are, that are forecast. And that gives us a, a significant amount of time and leeway. Um, 
but it also offers challenges, as we all know that the weather forecast can change. And so we need to be in a place where we're not starting and stopping and starting and stopping. And so this can make things things quite a bit more challenging, especially when we start to look at different types of, of crops and, and different types of um, growing conditions needed for them. I'm so glad that you emphasized the, uh, the dignity element. Uh, that's something that most people often forget about uh, when talking about the most vulnerable people on earth, but we all want and value our dignity uh, very highly, even vulnerable people. Yeah, exactly. No, this for me, when oftentimes, as you mentioned, we talk about this work, we talk about it in dollars saved. And yet we sometimes miss the human side of it is, but how much better are we helping people? How big of an impact is this having on people's lives? And you realize it's huge. And thankfully, and it makes sense and it's logical that it costs less to prepare and protect ourselves. Uh, we do this every day, right? We all wear our jackets, we throw an extra umbrella in our car, we have insurance, we drive defensively. There are things that we, that we do because we know that if we are in an accident and we will be covered, it's a lot more expensive than to protect against that. So in this case, it's, it's worked out in, in, a, in, a, in a double positive in that it's cheaper. But this impact, when you see people before the hazard has come having a few extra dollars to be able to, 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 to simply go to a relative's house and not feel like a burden because they bring with them some extra food to support themselves is worth everything. How did you end up in this really unique role? You know, like I was saying when I was talking to Roland, he, he constantly pushed my, my vision for, for what we, we could do. I think Roland is this guy that, that is, is quite potentially unassuming, but his, his, his passion and his vision to the future is second to none for me. And so he always presented these opportunities and always presented ways to think about them and gave us the ability to 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 think big and to and to really capture on these on these these opportunities to expand whether from a tv person or or just the five icons you find uh on the internet and and so i i did this and and it's he did this and when I saw the, the World Food Program looking for support for understanding and getting ahead of, of the climate crisis on the types of time scales that we work on in atmospheric science, which is right months and days and weeks, I jumped at it and I knew this was an opportunity, but it was very scary. And it's very scary in a sense that there wasn't somebody who had that job before me for 10 years and I could just start into something. And so it was this really neat and daunting prospect of, of flying my family and myself to Rome, leaving the comfy confines of, of UBC and all the wonderful support and, and flying everyone over here and, and, and then taking on this role where, where people look to you for what's next, what do we do here? And there were times when I wondered, my goodness, what have I, what have I bitten off here? Um, but like I said, the impacts at the field level were, were so large that it, that it just didn't take very long. Within a few years, we, we knew what we were doing and, and we were off and running. And now we have, I have, I think, eight official meteorologists working, working for me um, in, in across Africa, Asia and Latin America, and bringing this together and bringing, bringing these, these types of skills from, from UBC right to the Met Services in, in Haiti or in Nepal or Bangladesh. And it's a really neat uh, aspect. As you were talking, I was getting a little anxiety myself because I, I've, I've been in that kind of experience. Um, and I know it's a cliche to say that uh, history repeats itself, uh, but if you don't have the history of someone ha having had that role before you, um, you don't know what you're getting into. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're right. No, it was anxiety. You know, what have I, what have I done? And, and I didn't have quite the, okay, well, I'm still in Vancouver or I'll just, you know, it's really, really went out on a limb, but I, and of course I needed my support from my family and friends and, and Roland and everyone to say, 
do it. Give it a go. Uh, were you looking at the heat dome that affected us this summer? I was. I follow. I follow everything uh, very closely. The fires, the the heat waves, um, and and the impacts on. I saw rock falls and Squamish Chief and and all of the obviously the air quality followed by by COVID and um, yeah, I, as we can see that 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 weather and climate are are driving so much of our needs and our concerns for the future that it's clear to me that that the time has passed where atmospheric scientists are only on TV or, or, or behind a computer, um, you know, write, writing 60% uh, chance of showers tomorrow. It's clear that we've, we, we have a bigger role to play and it's starting to, to, to open up for us. Absolutely. Especially as weather systems become less predictable and, uh, more chaotic exactly and and more and more and more common and one of the things that we realize now is that and one of the reasons why the world food program called was that normally you could say okay this year was a bad year and next year will be we'll go back to normal and the year after that will be normal and we'll all recover and we'll get our resilience up enough so that in five to seven years when el nino comes back we'll be better off but then it wasn't a normal year and then it wasn't a normal year. And then all of a sudden those were the normal years. <laughs> and and this is this is obviously, you know, a big, a big issue. And so there is no more waiting. Right. That, that it's arrived. Right. I think we've all agreed that it's that it's here now. And so these are the changes and 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 some of the the new ways of working that places like the World Food Program are, are implementing to to combat that, you know, and to ensure that, okay, you know what, it's not just about delivering food after an event, because there's much more we can do now with technology, science, and the fact that we need to. Speaking of that science, I'm curious if you've made any major discoveries that you care to share or any uh, successes that really excite you? Yeah, so I think for me, the biggest the biggest successes have been able to see what we've been working on with scientists and atmospheric scientists in in met services around the world and then seeing that trigger actions at the field so much like we might see in vancouver when there is a forecast for a cold weather event and we socially implement programs that open up heat centers, we make sure there's blankets, we make sure there's a variety of different ways that we communicate early warning information. This is much very similar to what we're able to do in developing countries, albeit with much reduced infrastructure. So being able to see a technical weather forecast translate all the way down into an upazilla in Bangladesh where a flood forecast needs to be translated to the depth of the um, of waters against the village elders door, then we're able to transfer money to these folks in order to give them a hand in evacuating higher ground, being able to save their belongings. And we were able to do this last year in Bangladesh. In fact, we were able to do it in the Philippines and Nepal. In Bangladesh, we were able to reach hundreds of thousands of people in four days um, building off of these, these frameworks, building off of the fact that we, we look closely at the, at the false alarm rates, at the risk of, of acting in vain, uh, acting in vain in quotations, because obviously these are the, some of the most poorest people in the world, um, and, and ensuring that the processes were connected, that a scientist, that a meteorologist, who often just puts up the 60% chance, was actually triggering the humanitarian system to deliver aid based on the, on this forecast, to have that type of, of of input and impact. This this to me was was one of the biggest success stories for us last year, um, and and it's available on, on on the internet. There there are many papers now that are being presented, um, and I would encourage folks to to check it out to have a look for themselves. I think they'd be quite impressed on on what we we're able to do. It sounds like a meteorological forecast on steroids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, it really is, right? Because it's 
it's it's finally giving people the the confidence to attach actions to to our forecast right and saying okay it's time for us to to act it's time for us to to make choices and those choices cost money and and it's time for us to do that at scale it's it's time for us to coordinate that and that's and that's what we're we're doing and i think yeah we're going to see a lot lot more about this uh, uh what are you working on right now so right now we're in the middle of the Asian monsoon season, runs from June to September. And so we have about 12 million US dollars uh, pre-positioned waiting in case there is a forecast for a severe flood in uh, Bangladesh and Nepal and the Philippines. And so we're watching with very closely, obviously, uh, to, to see about this monsoon season. Um, we've had some early indications of some flooding in Nepal, but so far, nothing. Thankfully, right? Thankfully, uh, nothing has, has been forecast to, to, trigger, to trigger these alerts. And so it's August now. We're transitioning to probably the late part of the season. Uh, there'll be some risks for, for cyclones in, in the Bay of Bengal. And, and we'll turn our attention to the typhoon season in the Philippines now through the end of the year. And we'll start to focus on the developing Southern Africa rainfall season, looking at places like Madagascar, which you may have heard is currently having severe famine uh, conditions in the south. And so another failed rainfall season there would be catastrophic. And so we're now these these forecasts it's August now. There's their forecast their season will start in November, and so we're now starting to look at the initial those initial forecasts and see if we can start to to implement actions that might help people mitigate any further impacts to to their rainfall season in order to support them as best as possible uh, into into coping. Right now it's a very serious situation situation over there. And, and then finally, we'll round out the end of the year um, looking, looking at the rainfall season in Eastern Africa um, because they have a season that ends in, that starts and ends in October, November, December. And so we're very, we have this kind of, you know, it's, it's interesting because we have a very obviously seasonality approach to our program support when we have one to two months a year where, where these frameworks could be needed to be triggered. And then the rest of the time, we're developing them. So you can imagine how much work it is in order for everyone to agree that that's a lot of rain, right? So in Bangladesh, a lot of rain is something over your shoulders. For us, a lot of rain is something over our ankles. So there are these very interesting uh, conversations that need to be need to happen and need to happen with all the right people, obviously, uh, in order to coordinate and ensure that these are not the kind of conversations you're having when the forecasts are coming in. You're not saying, what do you mean that's a lot of rain? You're saying, no, we've, we've, we've had these conversations, we've moved on, now we're just implementing these, these actions. So for the rest of the year, this is, this is what I'm doing. In addition, as you can imagine, I need some way to be able to, to show people the changes this is making on people's lives. It's very obvious, but at the same time, we need to be able to show that through monitoring and evaluation and asking questions like, what is the difference if I give you aid, I support you before a hazard versus, versus after? Although the answer is quite clear. These are some of the programs and systems that we need to make sure are in place so that we can continue to scale up uh, this, this type of innovative work. It sounds like you've still got a very um, rigid calendar, much like the university system. Um, but instead of having September being the time when everyone's getting ready for classes, you're dealing with monsoons in Africa or Asia. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. And then, and then, and then, obviously, further compounded by by all of the the conflict and other extenuating circumstances that make these this work challenging um, and 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 rewarding at the same time. Wonderful. You've mentioned mostly um, developing nations that you're, you're working in. Uh, do you look at developed nations or, or do you leave that more to their uh, domestic weather services? I mainly look to them for, for hand, for support. I mainly look to them and say, you know, it's been a very interesting conversation because a lot of times when we think of support from developed nations, we mean finances. We only want finances. 
But actually, as you can imagine, it's been easy for me to say, how about some people from your Met service? How about giving me access to that computer over there? Um, things like that. And that's a conversation that's an interesting one and a new one um, because it hasn't had to happen before. We haven't needed that level of technical advances. And, and, so, and so now that's really where my relationships stand with, with the developed nations. Um, how can you support us? What type of expertise can you, can you help us into ensuring that these early warning systems that we use here at home every day we're so used to them we see the red line come out from environment canada it comes with a nice description we know what to do there's hotlines um how can we utilize that information that experience and start to implement it there but in an interesting twist that we want to use it for reaching more people with humanitarian aid not solely for just to build capacity in an early warning system. We actually are attaching it to that final piece, which is reaching somebody in a household who's struggling. And I think this is a, a, huge, a huge piece and a huge game changer because it allows us to connect science to need. And for me as a scientist, you, you think, why do we have a seven day forecast? Probably a meteorologist just came up with that number. If, if, if the World Food Program said we could deliver aid to everybody if with an eight-day forecast, we could have that. And so that's the kind of conversations they're trying to say. The World Food Program is saying, look, if we need to be able to identify vulnerable people in the farthest reaches, we need to, like, two, three days to get there, a couple of days to talk to folks. Like, we need seven to ten days to do these things. Then we can work backwards and say, okay, so that means... The Met guys or girls need to do this, this, and this to support us with something that is robust enough for us to make these investments. And that to me, it's really exciting because we get to drive cutting edge science based on field level needs. So it's a great, uh, a really neat, a neat way to see that, that link. Great, yeah, it's a, it's a two way street it seems. <laughs> Yeah, I, well, and, and all relationships are, right? I mean, that's, that's why, and when they're not, they get broken. Uh, do you get out into the field very often? Quite a bit, yeah, especially, especially in the, in when I first started, because I, you know, I didn't have any dollars to, to hire somebody else. Um, so we spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time in, in, in Dhaka and Bangladesh um, because of a number of things, because of their vulnerability to, to floods and cyclones, um, the fact that they have a really functioning, well-functioning government and, and pieces that we can, you know, start, start to connect. The same in Nepal, Philippines, and, 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 and yeah, and across, and across Africa, actually. It's been, it's been a lot of work, so, and, and in Latin, and Latin America, especially in, in Haiti and, and the Caribbean, I mean, and Dominican Republic in the Caribbean. Um, because you are with the World Food Program, as you talk about all these different nations, I have to admit, I'm imagining all their uh, traditional foods and I'm getting very hungry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. These are like, it's funny because um, coming from Vancouver, we are Vancouver, we are very foodie people, right? And, and so you're right. When I lived in Vancouver, I wasn't about uh, where I wanted to eat. It was what type of food I want to eat, I want to eat, you know, different type, different nationalities. And certainly this has been a, a, a really big bonus of being in the World Food Program and traveling around is being able to try all of the different food. However, living in Rome means that you are force fed pizza and pasta every day. So there's a, there's a downside to that if, uh, if you don't like eating uh, pasta seven days a week and having pizza uh, maybe in the morning. <laughs> Okay, I'll, um, yeah, we can warn future students about that. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to my question about the field, um, one of my favorite parts of the, these interviews has been hearing field stories. Um, I've personally never gone to the field, but it sounds like this magical place where just crazy things happen. Uh, do you have any field stories that you'd care to share? You know, the great thing about the, uh, about the field for me is, is, obviously me is obviously meeting the people. And um, 
you know, we travel to many places that are that are unsafe uh, or or could be unsafe, and so we 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 get the we have a, we have offices in each of these countries, and there are drivers and people who pick us up. And every time that I'm in a in a World Food Program truck uh, that picks me up from from the airport, I'm I get to meet somebody uh, from that city, from that country, who who is very passionate about helping their people, and. And having those long conversations from the airport to the hotel and and or to to wherever you're going to work with with folks like that who who've been spending their lives supporting their own people by working their world food program gives you an amazing insight into into the challenges of of, of living there uh, and and coping with with many things that we that we take for advantage and so each one of these, each one of these missions allows me to to re, yeah, to reflect on how lucky on how lucky we, we really are. Um, I've been lucky enough to to be like you, be a food experimenter. I've not had any 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 major problems, thankfully. I think it's from my my training at home, um, and and I think as probably many people testing, I think you know. Uh, uh, if you have a big smile and and are open to to where you are, it, it tends to to really make things make things easy. And so I haven't had any any harrowing stories or or any major major fallouts. They've all been about meeting some amazing people in some incredible countries um, that 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 maybe I'd never get a chance to go to. And unfortunately. You know, many many years ago, might have been these wonderful places to visit and 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 be part of. And now, 10, 15 years later, are are, are places where the world food world, where where we have to work. And and it's sometimes, uh, yeah, it can be sometimes overwhelming to to imagine that uh, things are not actually so much better in in twenty twenty one than than they were thirty years ago. That's really scary that it's changing that fast. Yeah, exactly. No, it's 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 it is. Um, it's it is it is scary, and I think I think that's really what makes what having this job so so important and so amazing. And you can imagine that there's a lot of time I have to take away from the family when when I fly away and and, and head to the field, uh, but at the same time, it's obviously uh, an important contribution to the world and a place that I can that I can communicate back to my daughter on. And why we do the things we do here and how we live. Do you find there are any communities that are going the other way where um, they were receiving uh, World Food, Pro- Food Program aid and then um, regained their sustainability? Yeah, absolutely. There are numerous, numerous success stories of how WFP has come in and, and, and not just with the humanitarian aid port, but part, but supported them with the resilience building, supported them with climate adaptation, supported them by ensuring that these investments are protected when we have a, a forecast for a typhoon or a major flood or a drought, making sure that those, those investments are, are covered so that when the threat passes, these things can continue to be building up the resilience of, of people who live there. And, and this is this, this connection between something like climate adaptation, five, 10 years worth of work with these shorter range blips in the climate where we have severe weather, making sure we're able to protect those so we don't lose five to 10 years every time we get hit is, is part of this really neat uh, sort of one-two punch that, that, the w, that the World Food Program can, can deliver when we're looking at the climate crisis. So definitely people are, are, are coming around. Great. It's good to know there's, there's some hope. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. It just sometimes it seems like there's 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 always a new a new fire, even when you see the ones or a new heat dome or, um, you know, and you think, OK, like we really, really we, we really need to ramp up our work here. I'm going to change tack a little bit. Um, I'm curious, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, do you feel like that's impacted your career or, or your studies? No, you know what? I don't. And so I wouldn't be able to to comment on that. But we have an incredibly diverse team uh, working with me. And 
I could imagine um, many challenges actually still as we travel across different parts of the world for team members. So I not not for me personally, but but it absolutely absolutely think that there are many places still in the world that is very challenging for people from underrepresented communities to be able to effectively do their job. And for the UN, you are, everyone is equal. This is fine. But I do recognize that that can stop at the door and it makes life challenging. And so together as a team, we work around this and do our best because we don't get to work necessarily at home where 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 we have those those open rules and those open uh, understandings and and so this can be really challenging when you're in, in, in uganda or in any of these places that are still as you know from the news not necessarily in line with the way we would think over here on on being accepting of of everyone mm-hmm. it's interesting that that even uh, affects people from an organization as prestigious as the un yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely, right? It's tough out there. It can be tough out there. As a whole, uh, do you find that atmospheric science is uh, a welcoming field or is it a little more insular and um, inward looking? I think it's known as insular and, and inward looking. Um, and I think when when you one of the real great things that i can bring to that table is that i can open up that door and that is being huge because it means you walk into a room with a bunch of smart people and you can have a conversation with them using their language and then turn around and convert it into the language that's needed for a humanitarian organization to reach people and that has been massive. That has been that has opened up so many doors for us because otherwise, otherwise the communication sometimes breaks down. And you can imagine that the World Food Program knows what they want to do. They want to reach more people with humanitarian aid. Uh, that is a hard thing for a meteorologist to understand. So we need some way to say about probabilistic triggers and what are the risks. And how do I convert that into do I act or do I not act? And often what I see is the breakdown in that communication is that the, the end user, the, um, the client ends up just saying, uh, kind of giving up and, and the meteorologist says, well, I'll just present everything for you. And then they decide that they'll just wait and see. So this has been a, a big piece for me to, to crack. And, and it's happening. This is, this is why I was saying earlier about the, when I ask for a developing nation, not just finances, but access to their scientists. So that's a funny question. And that breaks open a lot of that. Yeah, a lot of those issues around being, being closed in. I was just, just going to say there's benefits to both, uh, both um, mentalities. Uh, being insular means that you can talk to someone in the field and uh, they'll help you out because they're looking after their own, but also you want to be welcoming to let in new voices and get that science out of the, the bubble uh, and into the real world. Exactly, exactly. No, and this is, this, is a big, this is a big piece for atmospheric scientists. It sounds like you're straddling that line nicely. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly a good representation of, of, of this role, is to try and straddle that line. Now, you mentioned earlier um, about how you can't just work from home. Uh, but of course, this past year, many of us have been working from home because of COVID. Uh, so I'm curious, how has COVID impacted your work? It's been really, it's been really tough. Yeah, it's been really tough. Not so much on the the organization at HQ level. Obviously, this has been easy to do. Um, internet in many countries is is it can be tough, and so having communications with people in the field has been strained. Um, being able to to bring complex ideas together faced by the needs of people um, has been challenging to do remotely. Challenging to do remotely with different cultures, different languages, different accents. Um, it's been it's been really it's been really difficult, uh, but we've had to do it. And so it's just taken, more screen time 
than than we've wanted. And um, th- you know, this this has been a really a really challenging piece. But we've been able to do it. Uh, obviously, COVID doesn't stop fires and 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 floods and these things need to happen. And so we've pushed through. Uh, but it's certainly been uh, much much more difficult uh, when when we think about that. And so we do we do still go to countries. We do still fly into countries. Uh, we're in one of my staff is in Madagascar right now, and she just got back from Ethiopia uh, recently. So there are, as you can imagine, we put in the five six days of quarantine, and and we get it we get that over with, and then we we go to work in the country and. And build out these 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 frameworks for how to protect people. That really puts uh, the trauma that we've undergone in a, a global pr- perspective. Um, I mean, it's certainly been traumatic in the developed world, but in other uh, parts of the globe, um, trauma doesn't even begin to describe how it's impacted them. Exactly. No, I mean exactly. The impacts are. That's right. Yeah, and, and it's it can be hard to imagine unless you're able to. To, to go there. Now you've painted a picture of someone who's really making a difference in the world and a lot of young people do want to make a difference when they grow up um, or when they mature because <laughs> um, many of them are grown up. Um, so what background or courses uh, or experience would you recommend for uh, young people who are listening to you and maybe want to follow in your footsteps? Yeah, absolutely. Well, for for certain, I mentioned that that I that I managed to start that co-op um, program when I worked at CTV, and this is something that I'm going to to to. I'm very passionate about seeing that as part of my career um, going forward because we I don't see a lot of scientists from Canada coming over to to the UN and atmospheric scientists coming over to the UN. I don't see as much knowledge about what can be done for the climate crisis being floated around um, my colleagues in, in Canada. So there's a big information piece there that I, that I hope, and this is one of the reasons why we and you are talking, that I hope to start to generate some thinking around this, right? And, and, and people can just contact me. I mean, I'm on LinkedIn and, and, and I'm very passionate about growing this. And so this is the beginning of that. What, what people need to do at the same time, as you're exactly right, is, is start to define some courses and some pieces that can better prepare them for, for an, international, an international career. And, and looking at some of the things that we need to do that we've talked about today, communication being, being huge. I know there are many communication courses at UBC. Add these in. They're not, maybe you don't get your science credit or anything, but um, these are huge. Being able to, you know, I always thought, did I make a mistake working at CTV? Did I make a mistake spending time in television? Until I realized, my goodness, the communication skills I I, I achieved from them, being able to communicate science to a wide variety of people was massive. So I, and I know a lot of times, and it's funny that, you know, Roland Stoll does this a lot with the green screen, makes people talk, get in front of people, speak, think, learn, fail, do that, force yourself to do that. Because if you can't communicate, it makes it, you could be the best scientist in the world. You can't communicate, it's going to be a very difficult piece. The second thing is language. Western Canada is not known for everyone speaking different languages. Uh, learn French, learn Spanish, learn a UN language. That will be huge. It'll be huge for your personal life, but also um, important for for an international career, uh, even within the government of Canada, obviously. Um, and and other types of climate courses that allow you to to communicate how your role, whether it be in clean energy or in atmospheric science is is connected to to the climate crisis so i think these these climate change courses again can sometimes be outside of the core group of courses that atmospheric sciences can take but we you can take them no one is stopping you and and gis gis is a is a is an incredible communication tool um 
and and definitely uh, there's definitely a few wonderful courses there that will prepare you to be able to quickly make a map and be able to communicate visually um, what you're what you're talking about. And so those are the th like three kind of main areas that I would that I would encourage people to to add to their add that to their um, to their resume, add that to their to their course load. I think that's sound advice. Um, first of all, I love that you said just try communication and don't be worried if you fail. Um, I think back to some of my early science communication and some of it was terrible, but that's how you learn what doesn't work. <laughs> Learning other languages, of course, is incredibly important, especially something that's not really as valued out here in Western Canada, like you mentioned. Um, and Roland has actually developed a new uh, renewable energy course. Uh, so. And of course, it's jam-packed and very popular. Exactly. And you know what, <laughs> like this another huge developing piece around energy. People probably don't imagine, where are you going to cook if you get hit by a cyclone? What are you going to do? You're going to go and, 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 and you're going to go inside of a, a mud hut and you're going to bring in trees, which were planted to to keep the soil in place so you could farm or to stop a mudslide and you're going to go inside and you're going to cook and you're going to bring build breathe these fumes and it's a nightmare it's a nightmare and and so i clean energy to me is like another another massive place that people can start think of but in a in a in a in a undeveloped context how how do we how can we support that that's that'll be a really neat part we definitely have to see science through a cultural lens. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Looking back to your own uh, past, what would you say was the most uh, important course that you took in school? Oof, good one. Well, for sure, for sure, everybody takes the Atmospheric Science 201. That is like the, you have to do that one. That's, that's the, the, you know, that's the one where you get to meet, you get to meet Roland and, and the whole crew. Um, after that, oof, good one. Um, I had took so many, so many great courses, uh, so many of the science courses. I really doubled down on on the science courses because we all do because we really, we really like those. Um, and then, and then I did take the communications courses as well. I can't remember the, I can't remember the name now, but it was a, yeah. Uh, yeah they have to, I'm sure that probably has a new, a new number. It seems to be paying dividends. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think I know the answer to this one, but who did you find inspiring while you were studying? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, Roland is this guy, and then and then he he always had these really cool folks hanging around him. But they were always everybody would come from a different place, and it really offered a neat diversity to the to the to the piece. So we had that. This Henrik, which was the the computer, the computer guy. Another Roland is another computer guy, and 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 then a various set of of researchers and and old and students, all of whom I speak to today, like weekly. We continue. We had a, a Gmail chat back then, in, in the year two thousand and and. Uh, well, 2010, and we continue to have that chat uh, today, a decade, a decade later. Um, and so all of these people uh, I include in my, you know, how, how I was inspired to, to move forward, because they all kind of bring something a little bit different. But um, yeah, you're right. Roland, Roland will always go down and, and in so many different contexts, he's always been, uh, been there for me. Uh, and it's been really cool to have somebody like him. In, in Wonderful. There. Yeah, definitely. The more I get to know Roland, the more I'm always impressed by him. I mean, have you ever seen him not smile? No. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, unless unless you steal his Coke from the fridge. <laughs> Roland is definitely um, a reliable forecast as having a sunny disposition. Now, you mentioned that you've built your own team at the uh, WFP. Uh, what do you look for when you're adding members to that team? Yeah, so this is really interesting. And it's again, it, it follows the same theme of being able to ensure I have people who, who, who are obviously bright and educated, um, and, but can communicate uh, what they're seeing. It's impossible for me to be able to answer the types of questions that we need to answer very quickly if I have to decipher 
every single report that comes out. And, and so we've had wonderful people who, who are unable to write anything more than, than a very technical brief. And it just, it just, it's just too slow. It might be technically correct. I need, I need somebody who can, who can do both. Um, and so we look very closely and often we add a, um, a communication test. Very simply, we put a test down for people to, to write uh, under time, under duress, uh, to, to be able to communicate uh, technical stuff effectively. Um, I look for people who, who are uh, open to learn new things, obviously, um, who are able to, to really understand um, why they would like to join the World Food Program. Really, like, instead of just, I want to join the UN, I mean, sometimes you get this, I just want to join the UN, it's okay, it's kind of strange. Um, but, are, but are able to articulate what, what it is they actually mean by, by joining the UN. And that's, a, that's one of the first questions. One that throws, as you can imagine, throws a lot of people off when, when you're um, inviting them to a technical uh, interview, which is something very simple, which is, what do you think we do? And why do you want to be part of it? I love that idea of having a, a communications challenge. Um like you said, under duress, because the work that you're doing isn't calm and, and stress-free. <laughs> no, never is. Never is. Yeah, no, under duress. That's right. A time. We make a time. Mm-hmm. That is the job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, um, and lives are on the line, right? Speaking of time, um, you're at roughly the middle of your career. Uh, looking toward the end of your career, what would you like to be your legacy? Uh, that's a really good one. That's a really good one. Well, one one thing for sure is um, I don't want us to have an interview at the end of my career where you ask me, how did I find this job in the WFP? I would like it to be pretty darn obvious of why people from UBC and, and, and Canada are working in agencies such as the World Food Program. Um, with atmospheric science degrees. And that to me is where I want to be. And, and so it's been a lot harder to, to start this, this work in, in WFP um, with the different uh, offices and the, 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 the growing nature of this innovative work, right? It's been happening at the same time. We see needs in the field, but at the same time, the climate crisis, and we're seeing more and more attention, more and more people talking about how to, how do we get ahead of this? And so now, now after seven years, I can see the framework is there and start to think, okay, now, now I can start to see how I get to the pathway where you don't ask me why, how I found this job and it becomes part of why aren't you working for the UN or why aren't you working uh, to support the climate crisis? How could you not be doing that? Now, um, finally, uh, you mentioned that uh, you're seeing uh, climate change uh, accelerating, um, but even the field and the work that you're doing uh, is probably changing in a very quick way. I find very often that the fields that we enter at the beginning of our, our career uh, are completely different at the end of our careers. Um, so where do you see the work that you're doing uh, going? Uh, and what advice would you have for young people to prepare for and, and anticipate some of those changes? Yeah, I mean, I think that we started out with cyclones and, and droughts. And I think that we are going to rapidly expand our hazards. You know, frost, high winds, flash floods, as we start to build out the skillfulness of these forecasts and the lead times that they can offer, we'll be able to address more and more of these, these types of perils. You may have seen over the winter, there was a frost, a major frost, I think in France forecast, and there were these pictures all these farmers lighting candles across all of these fields in order to try and keep the air warm just enough by the roots in order to, to ward off this frost. And I thought, wow, here is, here is an action driven by a forecast at scale right here in, in, in Europe. Or, or we saw in California that the power company shut off all the power before the fires for, forest fires ever showed up. And everyone's going, there's no forest fire. Why have you turned off my power? They made this, this decision 
that cost them money, that cost them political points, but it saved much, they saved many dollars when, when power lines were pulled, o- pulled over by the wind and they didn't cause any forest fires. It was a huge, a huge piece. So I see this work expanding to things like fire and uh, locusts and um, health. And, and obviously people will want to start to think about conflict and displacement. Um, but coming back to what we see in, 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 in EOS is, is the energy piece is going to be huge, right? This is already huge, but it in, in, in doesn't just have to be about wind turbines and, and solar panels. It can be, like I said, about how do we expect all these people to cook in emergency or ahead of emergency? Or what, do we, what about when we're thinking about food systems? What do we mean about how does somebody protect a bumper crop? You put it in a fridge? Do you put it, how do you dry it when it's raining? Uh, how do you do all these things that requires energy? These are concepts and thoughts that, that are bubbling up now. And I don't, I think they're just kind of coming up, you know, I don't know, for, for me, for me, it's quite, I see it. And so I would think that people in the universities could start to, to, to lean on that. When you think about a food system, how do, how do we protect the food of people? Where does energy come in in a food system? Where does it come in in a developing nation? Where does it come in in an emergency? We need to to open up our minds to these different pieces. And then on top of that, these these little small uh, renewable energy projects, we're also talking about energy sustainability or energy um, security in nations. These are another big, big places for, for atmospheric scientists to start to engage in. I work in, in the humanitarian sector. I'm mainly about delivering humanitarian aid. I live on the line though because I need to have capacity built into a government or into an early warning system which we would consider as, as, as development. And so atmospheric scientists can, can, can travel down the development path, building capacity in, in energy systems, or come over the humanitarian side and start to do some of the things I'm doing or some of the other things with energy. So I believe that it is a, a huge place for people to, to invest time in. And probably the limit is just creativity and time. It's nothing else. It's like we were saying before, there's really that cultural and regional and historical uh, aspect that you have to take into consideration. Um, and as you were talking about the new kinds of natural disasters coming out, uh, just on a lighter note, um, I started thinking about all the terrible B-movies that are made about natural disasters. And now we're going to have B-movies about frost and locusts. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's right. I mean, it's all, um, yeah, impacting people. And then, and then of course, in places that, 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 you know, struggle, then they need to move. And we see conflicts, right? And so we start to see how, again, weather forecasting can be a major part in in ensuring conflict resolution, right? Let's find a way to ensure that a whole bunch of people don't have to leave their farms and travel to somebody else's place or other and start to have issues around, around resources. Jesse, uh, those are all the questions I had for you for today. Um, did I miss anything or is there anything you want to add before I let you go? No, I don't. I, I think we've covered a lot of great stuff. I just would like to reiterate that, that please, you know, if folks are really interested, please do re- find me on LinkedIn, reach out. I'm more than happy to do whatever I can in order to put you off in the right direction um, and support uh, because um, I know that for us to, to really do this, will require us all to, to work together. And so I'm happy to, to support that. So please, please don't be shy. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing your expertise and your passion and your perspective. Um, I think that's really valuable and I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot today. Excellent, it's been a really fun time talking to you. I appreciate it as well. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. 
for more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week here on Earth.